Too often in journalism, we get caught seeking the big. What I mean is, we want to know all about the home run, the touchdown, the game-winning goal. We want to talk to the hero and ask her all about that shot that sealed the deal. We want to stand around a locker of the conquering hero and hear what everyone else is simultaneously hearing. It's a bad approach. You know what you need to do? Find the small, a scar, a photograph, a limp, a bowl of tuna salad. Find it with the backup catcher, with the long reliever, with the rookie punter, with the point guard who never plays. Explore it and dig into it and revel in it. And that is where the best stories usually come from. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Max Bornstein, the showrunner and writer of the HBO series Winning Time, based upon my long ago 1980s Lakers bio, Showtime. This is episode number 252. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Max, we finally meet here in the uh, in the quiet. <laughs> I feel like every time I've been with you, it's been in a noisy place. It's either been on a studio lot somewhere mm. or at a premiere party or at a post-premiere sort of shindig event. Here's my question I'm wondering. The, the show is out and it exists and it's this thing. And I was wondering what for you the payoff is. You put all this work in. You grind, you grind. You're obviously a grinder. You are known as a grinder, a guy who just meticulous <laughs> detail and you can drive yourself crazy and you can drive others crazy. It's just this thing. Mm-hmm. So then it comes out and there's a big party and happy, happy, joy, joy. Mm-hmm. Does that do it for you? That's the party itself was wonderful in for its moment, for sure. I really enjoyed the premiere. If you're asking if it does it for me, the answer is that's not what does it, no. Um, I think I'll tell you this, this morning I got an email as of now, only the premiere, only the pilot has aired. That to me was an enormous kick because I love it because I'm really proud of it. Uh, more than I've been not to knock anything I've ever done anything else, but more than anything else of mine that's ever come out in a big way. This is personal to me. I've poured my heart into it and I love it. And so watching people react and enjoy the things that I feel so close to was wonderful. But the moment that made me cry this morning was I got an email from a friend who I, a real friend, not like a, not just a Hollywood friend kind of person. But, and you get a lot of the emails, which are always nice of, oh, congratulations. I love the show or whatever, which are with, with exclamation points. And those are great, but, but they don't emotionally move me. What moved me was my friend referring to it, referencing an artist, this guy, Joseph Cornell, who built these little boxes. And it's like this strange, interesting assemblage art and saying, this is what the show reminded him of with all of its weird layers and details. And it was a compliment that actually spoke right to my heart because it's exactly how I think of it. Like I always compare it to like a Rauschenberg where it's like this assemblage of pop cultural and cultural and artistic things that are, you know, a lot of the stuff that some people who might consider the style bold would look at and maybe too bold would look at and say, oh, we've seen some people talk to camera or we've seen this or we've seen that. Like to me, that's not what the show is. What the show is, is this layered like mix amalgam, like a cultural amalgam, like a stew uh, of all these things. And I think people don't even know what it is yet because the truth is the pilot is only a fraction. It's a 10th of what we'd have, we've had a chance to produce. And I think all of it, you know, I personally would stand behind and really proud and excited for people to see. So, but this, to answer your question in a long-winded way, just him kind of seeing and appreciating the, the work in a way that felt emotionally connected, artistically connected, observant, thoughtful about it on a, on a layered level made me feel seen 
to, to use a phrase. It made the work feel seen and it literally cried. I mean, I had been up since four in the morning working. So it was like, <laughs> right. I was a little bit tired, but I cried. I only wrote the book and people would say to me, I saw your show, right? They'll say to me, I saw your show. Mm-hmm. I saw these guys on YouTube who were extras in the show. They were, um, they were basketball, uh, <laughs> right? And they were talking about their show. Rodney will talk about his show. Jim Hector will talk about his show. Right. We'll talk about his show. Everyone will talk about their show, right? Right. Like, it's a weird community thing, right? Yes. Is that a comfortable thing? Or when you are sort of running the show, which you really are doing, are you like, no, man, it's my show? It's such a good question. Like, such a good question. And also such a weird, complicated, difficult impossible question of course it is every one of the beautiful and amazing things about a collaborative effort like this like any movie or any television show more than any other work of art i think actually maybe next to a building but i think more than a building to be honest because the level of craft and artistry required to make a television show or movie at every level is still personal whereas with a building you can get you can substitute out much more easily, uh, you know, one tremendous bricklayer artisan for another. Whereas in a television show, like that actor is bringing up what only that actor can possibly bring. And to the extent that this show is great because of John C. Riley or Quincy Isaiah, like that is them. That ain't, and now it also, of course, is what we wrote for them. And it would have made, maybe it would have been good also with some other, someone else, but it wouldn't have been this right. at all, right? And so it's a strange question, like the ownership of that. What I do know is that what I've noticed that I think is really interesting, and I think a beautiful virtue of this process, is that every person along the way, along the path, thinks that the thing that they do is the thing. It's almost like a fractal, you know, like a fractal where it's like the smaller things are the same, look exactly the same as the bigger thing, right? And so the component parts. So for as an, as an example, like Jim, obviously, you know, Jim has remained involved as a, as a writer uh, in the show, but like the part of Jim's process that was going to your door, optioning the material and like believing in that for 10 years or whatever it was, right? That without which it would not exist, right? It For Jim, he can look at that and say, this is my show because of that. Like I made this show. And that of course is true in a fractal way. But then on the, then you get to the place of like, okay, assuming that's all Jim did, right? It's not, but assuming like that, that person who optioned the material, then you go on and, you know, I wrote the pilot. And for me, I would then say like, if that's all I did, I'd be like, this is my show. I wrote the pilot, right? I created that thing. And, and then Adam comes aboard and directs the pilot. And then Adam could say or feel, right? He could give credit or credits due, but still feel like if you were, were only the people who came to set, it so happened I was there on set working with Adam, right? But like that's as the showrunner. But if it was just the writer, he would then direct it or a person would direct that, right? And then they would feel like I made this thing. But then in television, what happens, not with the pilot so much, of course, but with any given episode, a director will direct that. And then they will do a a very small amount of work in post um, because that's the nature of television direction. Like you direct, you move on to another show. So then the editors have it. And then the editors will then do work. And the editor will think, boy, what came in and what to me was a bunch of raw material. I made this show. And and then it goes on like that, even into VFX or and all the posts and music. Everybody feels that way and everyone is right. The difference with the only additional thing with the showrunner, um, I guess, particularly in my case, like I'm extremely like, I'm very detail oriented and I'm hands on and I love the whole process. So the difference, the only difference is that I'm involved at least collaboratively in all of those stages, apart from that first one, that initial one with Jim optioning the material from that point on the moment I was introduced, then I was there on set, you know, I, for the directors, I was there in post working with the editors. I was doing, so, so I see what this thing you're talking about, which is beautiful, which is that every single stage 
people are claiming ownership and there's a weird thing because none of them own it. Yeah. And, and the truth is, and nor do I, because I can see that at every stage there are these people who poured their lifeblood into this thing. And I would say with this particular show, more than any I've worked on, um, they really did pour their lifeblood. Like it is, there was a vibe from the get-go where people felt for whatever reason, I think partly because of their attachment, the material to the period. And then um, I think also because they responded to, you know, the style and what the show was. And then this cast, like people, like a snowball started to feel, wow, maybe we're making something really special. And that doesn't come along very often. Everybody has this sense of like, in their blinders on world, this they did the thing and everyone did did the thing. And me and my slightly pulled out perspective who's been there with each of them like i've also experienced that same thing too because when you finish you know when you finish directing an episode or i finish we wrap an episode that i've been a part of helping prep and work with the director and whatever i feel like we just made the thing then you get into post and you're like oh god it's a giant mess and then you work with them and it becomes the thing again and it's like there's something amazingly iterative about it here's what i don't get I, this has been my thought for the beginning of this process, being someone who's not familiar with this world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have like, just as an example, Jonah Hill is the director of episode two and Jess yeah, episode did two. did a great job. Right. Then you have different people directing different episodes yes. and you're kind of the overlord. You see it, you try to keep it cohesive. Mm-hmm. It seems like it would be like, all right, I have a book coming out on Bo Jackson. I'm going to get these writers to write chapters one through four. This writer is peculiar, but it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Doesn't make any no. sense. But what you're describing would be like a showrunner, whom this is very common, who says like, who had, you know, you write, you know, Jeff, you write these episodes, I'll write these episodes, so-and-so will write those. And then I'll do a little pass on it at the end. You know, for some people that works great. But I think for you, it's like, I wonder what that would be. Cause like, do you farm anything out? Cause the book oh. is basically all you, right? Oh, zero, just fact check. And then part of it, but part of that is like, part of the beauty of that, right? And part of the, it's like the beauty and also the, there's also like a loneliness to it at the same time, I would imagine. Cause it's like the thing about our process is that you cannot do it all yourself. You can't, even if you could do all of the individual things yourself, like some of those great polymath people like a Coppola or whoever, who is a great director, a great writer, they know their lenses or Soderbergh or whatever does editing, but you can only do so much. You still, it's such a gigantic undertaking even to make a small movie, not to mention a big thing that you just can't. And so it has to be collaborative in that way. Here's what I don't understand. Okay, Jonah Hill directs a second episode. We'll just use this as an example. And you're like, holy shit, this guy is great. He nailed it. This is perfect. He's got the tone. This is right. wonderful. Aren't you like, man, it'd be great if he could do three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Or are you like, oh, this is great. We'll, we'll hand it off to someone else. This well, no, great. it's like, of course you feel that way. And the problem is, the problem of course is that and on a first year show like ours, the scary thing is that I've never worked with any of those people before, right? So we, but you hire in advance, right? right. So you hire, you, cause everyone is so busy, all the good people, right? Everyone you would want, cause you know, you're, if you're, you know, if you have at least, you know, a pick of the litter in some way, you're, you're trying to get the very best people who come the highest recommended. And uh, in my case, coming in, you know, to this show, like I had never worked with any of these directors before because I come from that feature world. So it was a leap of faith at every time. And the truth, and we, but you have to slot them in because they're all busy. They have like their time cards. They're doing these periods, you know, these windows. So yeah, you get a director like Jonah. It's like, oh, that was amazing. And then it's like, but he has to, but of course, and of course it was never, he was always only going to do one. But even if he didn't, it's not like he's free. Like we've now booked so every new director was a leap of faith. I mean, we really lucked out. We made, I think, very good decisions and had wonderful people. But yeah, it's, it's totally terrifying. I've been doing these sports media rounds. I think number one, because it's just my turf and I know all these people. So I've been, I've been doing a lot of PR over the past week and a half on sports radio, some sports TV. And I'm going to give you the question I get. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's actually an uncomfortable one. So I'm going to give it to you. Cool. Which is this. People say, all right. You wrote the book Showtime. Yes. How much of the show is true? They'll say, how much of the show is true? I would say you have to understand from every sports from 42 to We Are Marshall to Remember the Titans. Sure. Name it. There's but you could go beyond sports with that. Sure. Sure. Of course. But in this case, it works well. Yeah. Say this is not a documentary. This is not mm-hmm. a documentary. 
but I am interested. Like, okay, here you're Max and you're hired for this thing. And at the base beginning thing, there's this book called Showtime. There's obviously a wealth of other material about the Lakers. Mm-hmm. You're not doing a documentary. You were doing a TV show about this time period. Right. How drawn do you have to be to the facts as opposed to playing off of the facts? Well, I think you have to, I mean, everyone can do it differently. Sure. Our rule was, and it's, it's a little like what that judge said about pornography that, you know, it when you see it, like there's no hard line. Right. But our rule was that the crazy things, the things that are going to make people go to Wikipedia and say, did that really happen? Those things have to be true. Uh, now, some of those things, like the what happened behind closed doors in that conversation, did they ever have dinner and talk uh, about that? The, you know, uh, oh, you compressed, there were, they played two games and this game was in December, but you moved it to November so that you could have them come through Detroit at the appropriate time. Like things like that, it's about comfort level. For me, sure, if you're some, if you're a stickler and that's like, and you just really want the documentary truth, you can knock us on that. But it's judgment. You go, well, we're like, for example, there's a, you know, in, we decided like not to change the outcome of a Celtics Lakers game, even though it was not an important Celtics Lakers game in the sense of it wasn't playoffs, but it was the first important, you know, big contest between Magic and Bird. So we, and the Lakers happened to win it. We didn't want the Lakers to lose it, even though maybe dramatically it could have been interesting for them to lose it. But that felt like, okay, that's a line. But that's on the line uh, for us right now. We can't change the championships. We're not going to say that people, we're not going to slander or defame people, you know, which is a legal line. And so it's, it is always a gray area. Um, and it really is just, it's a judgment call at every level of like, do you think, um, which ultimately comes down, I guess, to like, do we, the producers, um, think or me if i'm in like in charge of the writing at that time do i think that this like doesn't pass the smell test right and um and now in terms of like percentage i don't know but i would say this a tremendous amount of research went into this show like obviously a tremendous amount of research went into your book what we then had to do because we decided that we were going to tell the story at at the pace we are which initially we weren't like we were initially thinking miniseries to get through the decade, right? But now that we've like slowed it down and hope to have an opportunity for more seasons, it was incumbent on us to kind of retrace your steps. So you sent us, as you know, a ton of your research materials, interviews and things. We read probably, I would imagine, almost all the books that you've read uh, about this subject matter and and sort of just continue to collect. We went, I'm sure you did read all of the newspapers from the periods that we're writing in around just on Lexus Nexus. And we've done all of that legwork because we'll find things that you may have come across, but, but didn't make the grade sure. for the book. Cause it's like, Oh, Paul Westhead had a kidney stone and you're like, no one gives a shit. But for us, it's like, wait a minute, he's having this conflict with McKinney. We need something to happen. That's dramatic in Philadelphia as they're back there, he's back home and oh my God, he missed the game because he had a kidney stone and that can be a dramatic emotional thing. Like that really happened. Right. Now, so there's a ton of stuff like that that is quote true. Now we're still assembling it and trying to put it into a story that we think is true in a capital T sense and built of facts with glue you know, with creative license glue in between. And that is, you know, like you say, every sports movie is all, of all time has done it. And every movie of all time that is based on true events has done that to greater and lesser extents. Um, and it's always just going to be a question in the eye of the beholder as to whether, as to where you should or shouldn't draw that line. It's interesting. Years ago, so my least favorite sports movie of all time is We Are Marshall, which I... You probably haven't mm-hmm. seen. Have you ever seen We Are Marshall? Mm-mm. It's the worst no. movie. It's so bad. <laughs> I was complaining to Jason Schumann. This was years ago. I was like, God, this movie fucking sucks. And they change everything and it's blah, blah. And he's like, this is, he's like, Jeff, I get what you're saying, but you have to understand it is entertainment. Like it is entertainment. And you are allowed to like, you have to view it through the prism of people who are making entertainment. 
And yes, right. it is based on a true story, but it's different. But the thing that's hard, honest to God, when I write a book, it has to be. Oh, uh, God, it's brutal because you're thinking to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be cool if. Of course. <laughs> of course. You can't fucking do that. Of course. Yeah, it's hard. Um, but I mean, yeah, but anyway, yeah, we won't get into that. But yeah, I was like, that's why I mean, that's why you're writing scripts, right? It's, it's yeah. a whole other muscle. It's fun. Are you writing for the actors? And what I mean is, as an example, you have Magic Johnson, you have Magic Johnson in mind. Now you have Quincy Isaiah playing Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. When you yes. are writing, so you're writing for the actor. If well, were, I think it's both, right? Obviously, it's I mean, it's certainly initially, right? Writing the pilot initially, no. Writing the pilot initially is it was it was not we didn't know who was going to be anybody. You know, when I wrote that pilot, the first draft and then throughout the pilot, I had no idea who any of the actors were going to be um, and uh, and didn't do significant rewrites for actors at all, because I didn't know what they could do in this case of Quincy. Like, you know, by the even by the time we auditioned him. The script didn't, it evolved in a little bit in little ways from that first draft till production, but not in a massive significant ways where we recreated the characters. Mm -hmm. um, we hoped, and actually, you know, in the case of John C. Riley, like we got, we hit incredible pay dirt by finding someone who could actually pull off the two camera stuff and things, you know, that a lot of actors couldn't, you know, and so, but, but we didn't, that was no guarantee. And so, um, but then we made the pilot, the show got picked up and then the world shut down because of COVID. And we were going to go right into this, into shooting the season, but instead we had a year. And in that year, uh, we took that year to rewrite and write all of the scripts of the season. And at that point we had cast, not everybody. So we hadn't cast Pat Riley and Paul Westhead and some of the future characters, but we had, we knew who Jason Clark was. And we had seen what he did in the pilot. And so we knew not only who we thought Jerry West was, but all the brilliance and nuance that Jason was capable of bringing to that. And so then you're writing not only for Jason, for Jerry West, but you're writing for Jason Clark as Jerry West. And the same goes for John C. Riley. And by that point for Quincy, you know, Solomon Hughes was in the pilot, but we didn't have, he didn't do a lot. Uh, you know, it's but Kareem over the course of the season does a whole lot more, as you know. And so that was an unknown. And one of the things, the questions we were asking ourselves as we were writing and decided, like, no, we have to go really, really deep with Kareem because he's a really, really deep character was this terror of Solomon Hughes. Great guy. Killed it in the pilot has never acted before. Right. And we gave him four lines. And now we have to give him. Re speeches and emotions and what's he going to do with that and you know turns out it really worked but that was that was the fear but um but yeah it becomes now writing and working towards a, you know uh what we hope will become a second season and thinking about these characters it's like we have just an embarrassment of riches with these actors and so it's like and we do it all the time like there was a moment in the pilot where uh, the actress who plays Joanne Buss, Jerry's ex, like she just goes, ah, and uh, it's so funny. And I've loved it since she did it. And now whenever we write a scene with her, it's like, it's like, oh, time for the patented cackle. You know, it's like there's like actors will show you pieces, you know, tools from their toolbox and you'll go, oh, we got to write to that. Wait, you know what? Her minute and a half or whatever it is, like it's, she's obviously amazing. Amazing. Like really amazing. 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 Well, and that's like, that's a testament to her. It's a testament to John. And it's also a testament to Hank Corwin, the editor of the pilot and who was like a producer on the show and oversaw our whole editing team throughout. Who's a genius and who like layers that scene, you know, cause John does the dialogue and then he improvises this whole conversation and he layers it in the singing of the song. It's like, it's a masterclass. I, that's one of my favorite scenes in the show. So as you know, I recently wrote my first screenplay with a friend of mine, and it was a fucking mm -hmm. nightmare, right? It was a nightmare. <laughs> I'm glad and, to hear that. I'm glad to hear that a writer of your caliber oh. who's been doing it for years can still be humbled by that kind oh of... Oh, my God. And it's because it's like... It's supposed to be a nightmare. Yeah. And we hand it in, and I'm just dreading when we're going to get back, because I know it's going to be brutal, right? <laughs> and the one thing I keep hearing 
and we say it in journalism, but I found it much harder here is this whole idea of show. Don't tell like, yeah, I had, you know, initially I had pages right. where it'd be like six straight pages of two people talking. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. But it seems a million times harder to actually show. But like, here's the, how do you do okay, it? See, this is the kind of craft. This is my favorite kind of craft to talk, but it's going to get really, really like. Let's get geeky. Go ahead. Really geeky. All right. So it's my favorite thing. It's like I, it is the, it is the kind of thing that like you have to like you just have to do it a lot in order to get good at it's a 10,000 hours type of thing but the thing to think about like the thing I think about is what the next person needs to do right so like so don't think of it as like what you're writing for a reader think of it as what you're writing as a template for like imagine a computer was directing it like imagine it wasn't an intelligent human being who can who could interpret it and add things and like and so, like, for example, if I said, like, you know, Jeff, you know, if I said, um, Jeff looks at Max with interest, that's like, okay, that's fine. But if I said, you know, Jeff chews a thumb mulling over, mulling over what Max is talking about, I'm like, okay, that's more of an image. Like, we're getting there, right? And, and, and but then there's, if you said something like, I'm going to come up with a bad example, but, like, Jeff resents what Max is talking about, thinking of all the times that he's done this before. What a patronizing asshole to tell to talk to him like this, right? If you put that in the action lines, right? It's like that would be like bad. Now, why that's bad is not because of the bad idea. It's a great idea. The thing that's bad about it is that how the fuck is the next guy gonna put that on screen? Because the next guy has to take a camera and an actor and turn that into a thing without making up extra dialogue. Okay. So, like if you didn't give me the dialogue there and you didn't give me the beat or a specific juxtaposition of moments that tells that story that's the show then like how the fuck are they supposed to do it unless they're some kind of genius in which case you didn't write the screenplay they did wait so wait wait end- so how do you actually write instead of saying jeff is okay, thinking so the max is like natural well okay. in that in that case right in that case you might say like you'd have to construct the scene that way so i gave a hard example but which was like that you look like that i'm patronizing you right so it's like so what if it was like um so we would write the ver- you'd write the dialogue where and the, and the moments the beats as it were where you said Jeff says um, you know uh, uh, or Max this would be like uh, Max says well you know the kind of writing that I do is a lot more complicated than the writing you do Jeff a beat as Jeff regards him right, right. Uh, well, and then Jeff says well you know I've written screenplays recently as well. Uh, and then Max says, well, yeah, 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 but, you know, like, you've dabbled, but that's different, you know? Right. I mean, you've never really gotten paid for it, have you? Right? And now it's like, you don't have to tell me that, because I get it. I'm being patron. Now, Jeff chooses cheek. You know, like, what a fucking asshole. Well, you, now you're editorializing what a fucking asshole, but I felt what a fucking asshole, right? So yeah. you didn't have to editorialize it completely, so you sold it. That's kind of the way, right? You do like, Jeff chooses cheek. When you're writing the script, you do not put thinking Jeff chooses cheek thinking Max is being an asshole because you're just showing it as a cheek or do you add I that might, in? I might. Like, it's like, I usually wouldn't say thinking, but I might, but like, if it feels like it, if it merits it, I could say it, but the only, but I would only ever say it if I've sold it, right? So it, like, I, you say it as a punk, as a clarifier punctuation, just like idiot proofing it. Right. And also, and sometimes saying it in a funny way that will get a giggle out of the, out of the reader but like but 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 if you ever say that in an action line and you haven't already sold it then you're cheating but to say it after you've sold it is like you're giving it's almost like a punchline of a joke right it's like it's good like if you can sell it already and they're feeling it and then you say it then it's awesome because then what you've done it's not just and it's not an arbitrary rule and the reason is because what you've done is you made a roadmap for the future people there so like if you croaked tomorrow they have your document and they can take that, those architectural plans and they can make your vision of a show because you've actually laid it down as opposed to just said, because otherwise you might, like if you reduce the other version down to its, to that infinitum, to its logical extreme, then what you might as well say is, so there's, you know, yeah, like we'll make us tell a good story about the, 
World Trade Center or whatever your idea is. And then people are like, yeah, well, what is it? You're like, oh, you know, you do it. Because that's basically what you're saying when you're like, he's thinking this. It's like, you're telling the actor, you do it. And the right. actor's like, well, how am I the fuck supposed to do it? Like, you didn't give me the things to do. Like, my job is to interpret, not to make up. There's a moment in the first, uh, the pilot episode that I feel like 99 out of 100 people would actually overlook of, mm-hmm. because of all the things going on, which is mm-hmm. Magic is back in Michigan and it's right before the draft and he's in his house and he kind of walks down the stairs and his mom mm-hmm. is there and all these people are on the couch. The young woman says like, I want you to go to Chicago. I want you in California, sunny California. And you have all this shit going on at the same time mm-hmm. that I don't think anyone would actually think about. Is it hard to write a million motions going on at once in a tiny little scene that only lasts for about maybe a minute and a half at most? It's funny because it's like the, again, this is like my favorite craft shit, which is like, there's a bunch of different kinds of scenes and you start to like, the more you do, like the more different things you write, the more you recognize, the more they don't be, they're not scary. Where it's like at the beginning, maybe you're good at like a scene, the dialogue scene between two people, right? Like the simplest, that's like, you know, it's playing like a, you know, the D chord on the guitar or something. It's like easy, right? And then it's like, or now we have a scene where it's like a moving through space and there's little pieces and scenelets within the scene. It's like, and then you, and it's like, but the more you play your scales, like the more things you've written, the more you know and have a vibe, like a sense technically even how to like, the rhythm of it, like how to get in and out of those scenes and how to like, how to marry different things and how to transition between different little scenelets within a larger scene or even where you go like, you know what? That's not a scene, actually. That's an idea that I mm, fucking cut that scene and you know that that happened later. Like those things are still discoveries. Like the thing that you find is the, the more you get that craft, the more, the more your outlines um, resemble the finished product. Like in the beginning, if you're good, but all, but still green, then your finished product is like unrecognizable to your outline mm-hmm. because you had an outline, but you along the way realized you learned so many different things and you just, your finished product wouldn't recognize your outline. Whereas, but like, and then, and that's, they're never identical ever, ever, ever. But like right now, like, you know, I know the show and we've gotten to a place where like I write these really, really, really detailed scriptment documents that are kind of like outlines. But like I just I don't put it in script format because I find that like once I'm doing that, that's like that's fun. But also you get married to the beauty of it, like the sort of technical form of it. And so and the word choice and whatever. And that fucks you up because then you're fighting for word choice not thinking about story. So I like resist that until the end. And along the way, I like write these documents that are just giant chunks of paragraphs for each scene. And, and a lot of times it has the dialogue, but oftentimes I'll put the dialogue, like I'll just change, I'll like know what the dialogue should be or what I think it could be, but I'll put it into the wrong tense. So I'll say, for example, like Max says, he puts the dialogue in the wrong tense. When I know the dialogue is going to be, I put the dialogue in the wrong tense, but I do that. to sort of distance it from the finished product so that then once I've done that, then the process is I get to write the script and it's like a joy. And then it happens in four days. And that process, I usually like bring the writer, like the other writers in the writer's room in on that process. So it's almost like the way a lot of like showrunners, they'll like write a script and then like do a table read and people will pitch better lines here and there. So we kind of do that all at once where it's like, I've kind of semi written it, but not in script format. And then we go through it. And like, I, as I'm typing it and they're looking at it on zoom or in person, it's like, it's like, ah, I don't like that line. I'm looking for this. And like, and they'll maybe people pitch things in I'll get better lines. People have good ideas and it'll like evolve. But the point is that document ends up looking a lot like the scriptman document. There are changes, but it's pretty, pretty close. And I think like, that's just because like, you get like more and more facile with knowing like what will make a good scene and what you're going to end up. Like you end up, like when you're new, you end up getting to the same place. It just takes you longer. Right. That's like, that was, that's I think my, my experience of it. Before we continue with two writers slinging in, a quick word from our sponsor. 
Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I am so frustrated by my dog, Poppy. Why? She refuses to wear this Doug Flutie jersey I bought her at royalretros.com. I don't understand. Have you tried explaining it to her? I mean, she's just a dog. Poppy, listen to me. I know you've been frustrated by the past wardrobe choices. The thong was definitely a bad idea. So were the platform boots. But this jersey was special ordered for you, Poppy Perlman, from RoyalRetros.com. It was made with the finest materials and symbolizes a glorious period in American sport. Now will you please go into the bitch's fitting room and try it on? That was amazing. Finally, your tuition dollars pay off. The money line, you probably agree, maybe you don't, in the first episode to me is when Jerry Buss says, I don't understand why basketball can't be like this. And Magic says, to me, Dr. Buss, it do, it do, do. not it does, and not it can. Well, that's, well, it was going to be it does. Tell me the story of that whole situation. How did that come to be? I wrote it does. Okay. Rodney said it do. That's the story. That's the story, which was, and it's like there's a few of those moments. Like Rodney has had massive contribution throughout the, the process and is, you know, uh, a brilliant, brilliant writer and collaborator. However, there, every now and then there are these little things that aren't little. Like, I guess, he'll, you know, he and I talk about everything about character, about all the characters in all sorts of deep ways and about, and about story and whatever. But like when it comes to like certain little dialogue passes, um, he'll go, no, it's a do. Because he's like, that's how it, that's what he would say. Yeah. And it's, it makes it a trillion times better. You know? And, you know and so that's a good, that's a great example. Wait, do you know, as soon as he says it, are you like, oh, fuck yeah. yeah, that's great. That was great. That's great. That's instantly great. And there's a one, there's one other. Oh my God. There's a great one. In the, there's a great one. That's very similar oh, in the locker room. Oh my God. Yes. This is so good. It's in episode six. So I don't want to give it away if this is airing too soon, but there's a moment. Jack McKinney, obviously people who've read your book know that Jack McKinney's in a coma. Paul Westhead is the coach for the day and he's talking to the guys. And because he's a Shakespeare scholar, he quotes uh, Shakespeare and the guys are a little bit confused because they don't really know how McKinney's doing. And someone goes, magic goes, so coach did. And it's fucking hilarious. After this like really intense moment, he says, so coach did. Now, I wrote the first draft of that scene and said, so coach is dead. And Rodney just like, you know, he like, like sometimes I'll send him the PDF and he like crossed out the one like he'll we'll, we'll open up that PDF on a Zoom. Is that when, when we were writing in the quarantine and he and he, had, you know, and he had like, in, you know, because we had talked a lot and worked a lot and he had written some scenes before this. But like by that point in the process, he had like one note on every scene, just little things. And it was like a crossed out is. And it was like, yeah, of course, that's it's one of the best moment in the episode now. But it was like because because you make it like what people say. And that's the thing. And it's like and he has an ear for um, for what people say that's beyond. He's know? a funny guy. Um, Very funny. The first guy. few times I met him, I was like, oh, does, does this guy not like me? And like <laughs> he did my podcast. I can and he, confirm and vouch. He, he digs you, Jeff. He I can vouch. I appreciate that. He's he's yeah. really interesting and like this really fascinating guy. And you could see why he would add, like you just see all the textures of that guy. Uh, Rodney and I mean, Rodney and I started working together. Like, you know, I, there was a shot, there was a show that I, I, I was hired to do for HBO actually, that like for various reasons, it never ended up going forward, but we did a room. I was co- going to co-show run it with this one other guy. Great dude. Um, and, uh, but we were hiring other writers for the room and I read Rodney's script, the uh, script called Lord of the Flies, and was like, wow, this is really great. And then we had, we just sat down for coffee. And he and I are like, you know, we're very different from the outside in this, you know, like generations, you know, racially, like different coasts, like upbringing. Like we just, you know, we don't seem like, but we just like, we're instantly like fucking knotted fingers. We were just like, we had the exact same references get along, get the same, have the same sense of humor. Like, so it was very, very natural and really great, our relationship. And 
And we started working on that. And then I really saw him in the room and it was like, oh, this guy has like deep, deep, deep human insight in addition to being very, very funny. And so, uh, you know, once the show got picked up um, yeah, or once, once McKay came aboard to direct the pilot and we were starting the process of like, oh, like what would the season look like? You know, Rodney's the first person I called and, uh, and we'd already talked about it too. Cause like, you know, we're friends, right. but, uh, but yeah, he's, he's the best. I'm going to ask you a question you're not going to like, okay? Oh, boy. You said that last time. I didn't mind it. These are good. Okay. Every time I write a book, I see the warts, right? Every time Mm. I write a book, I see the Mm. warts. Episode one comes out. People love it. You're watching it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a wart? Yes. What is it? I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's, like, all I can say is, like, there's, like, uh, it's funny, actually, there's a moment that I'm in. There's yep. a moment that I'm in. I know. I didn't actually didn't want to be in it. There was a version, like there's a version I preferred where I wasn't in it. Um, but the version that I'm in is like tiny little thing that I, that I, there was a little version of it I saw that I thought was like the better version of that. And I always see that. Word. Wait, what are you in? What part are you in? I am like that. You see the corner of my eye and and cheek in the part early on when Bus is talking about the state of the league. There's just this guy, like a reporter, as a bunch of guys are running out of the locker room. Oh, and uh, and there used to be a thing that happened there that I thought was cool. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I would say Rodney and I both thought it was cool, and we were like, you know, thought it would have been a cool thing, and then wind up in the show. And and then I wound up in the show, but I was like, eh, it wasn't quite what I imagined and I thought it would have worked who knows maybe it didn't maybe it wouldn't have but I was that's the only thing honestly I'm really I think the pilot is like is amazing the only thing I look at as like a wart to be honest apart from that little pet peeve is some technical shit where I'm like we learned certain things as we went forward when it came to the way in which we shot basketball the way in which we sort of you know, dealt with the height discrepancies as we were trying to sell it amongst the actors. That was just like a learning curve that now that like, that's the case with any pilot where what it is, essentially, it's like people will see it. But what it is, is basically a test. It's like a test kitchen, like you're cooking that meal, partly to learn how you're supposed to, you know, how you're supposed to formulate, you know, the burger. The sequence of the coin flip is probably one of my, first of all, I'm in it, my wife is in it. And it's one of my favorite I know. three minutes ever. It is. It's so fucking good. And I, let me credit like Hank Corwin again, the genius, genius, genius editor, and also his amazing assistants uh, like uh, Juliana Rudnitsky and like and uh, Jeremy uh, Weinstein. Like, but I think Juliana had like a real hand in that. In that, like, because Hank, one of the brilliant things that he does, sort of harking back to what we were talking about about the the sort of master thing when people really become masters and McKay is great at this and Hank is great at this is learning how to empower, how to, when to take control and when to empower the people beneath you or the people who are working for you. And Hank is amazing at this. And he like, you know, I think he took a lot of what she did and, you know, he puts his spin on it and makes it amazing. He always credits her uh, with a lot of that. And it's like, it's, it's so joyful to work with people who are like generous and brilliant like those, like them. I just want to say I was at the, we were at the premiere party and Juliana came up to me mm. and she said, um, she goes, your wife's laugh as the boss secretary is one of my favorite things in the show. Right. I know. I know. She said that to me. That's my so wife good. doesn't remember laughing. And, um, then she said, but when I'm you're an send- editor, you know, everything that you know, people better than they know themselves because, you know, literally everything they did in that moment. Right. And that's the way it is. Like I'm sitting in those editing rooms and like you, you know, the ticks and the annoying things and, you know, the beautiful, magnificent things. It's amazing. And she said, I'm going to send you a gif of your life of your uh, wife's laugh. Oh, I love that. And it's been making its way through the. <laughs> it's really good. All right. I have a good one for you. 2003, you're at Yale and you do your first film. I believe it's your first film. Mm-hmm. Sword Swallowers and Thin Men. Yeah. And it was praised in the LA Times as young filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder like, okay, actually it's interesting. My first book came out in 2003. Oh, it, really? It got my best reviews ever, blah, 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 blah. 
I look back at that book and I think, oh man, I could have done this so much better. Oh, sure. Do you look back at that film and you're like, this is brilliant? Or do you look back and say, holy shit, I didn't know what I was doing? Well, I look back and go, I didn't know what I was doing, but I did a pretty good job considering I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I'm proud of what we did. I mean, you know, I made the movie for $3,000 plus like a grant for to buy some hard drives. I wasn't a member of the film program. And my mentor, you know, this guy, John Krauss, wonderful like producer here in L.A., who I had worked for like in, a, in an unofficial capacity reading scripts in high school said, you know, you really should make a movie because you have a really good drama school. Just like you use good actors. And I was like, so like a short I was going into my senior year. And he was like, no, no, I'm like, you know, make something longer. Shorts are boring. So I was like, fuck. I had a, and so I wrote a feature in a couple of weeks and it's very, it was very like what I could make, you know, like kind of romantic dramedy type of thing. And I had a cast what turned out to be amazing actors like Zoe Kazan, who it was her first movie and, uh, and uh, Fran Kranz, who actually just directed a movie with a great acclaim and is an amazing actor and a bunch of other really extraordinary talented people. And we made this movie over the course of the year, like at nights and just sort of, and I then like, you know, edited in my dorm and learned like, I didn't look, I like read a book about how to technically use the editing software. And then I did it and learned by making mistakes, how to actually do it. But it was the best school, film school. I never went to film school, but that was, I didn't, I honestly, afterwards I was like, oh, I don't need to go to film school. Cause I know they wouldn't have let me make this in film school. In film school, they would have made me do some small thing. And maybe that thing would have been better in some air quotes way, but I was able to play and fail in a way that was extraordinary. And, um, and so, yeah, I look back at it and I'm like, I mean, the biggest bonehead move I made was that I put in all the music I liked. And by doing that, I didn't think about the fact that like you have to budget for it and do all these <laughs> things. So when it came time and I got, I think the best thing that happened to me was, you know, uh, there was that article in the LA times that Kevin Thomas wrote, he called it his like, you know, best first feature of the year, which was like, what? And it never was released. It just played at a really, really cockamamie festival. Uh, but the result of that was I got a call from, and I had just graduated college, I got a call from like Ron Meyer's office. Now, Ron Meyer, up until very recently, was the head of, was the CEO of Universal Pictures and Studios and the whole shebang. And call, like read the calendar section and called. Uh, and I missed it. I called back and they asked for the picture, the movie. And I sent it to them and I was like, no, nothing will ever happen. And then he called me from the plane, like the corporate jet or whatever. And said that, you know, was like, just watched your movie, like really impressive, you know, whatever. Like, do you have an agent? You know, that kind of shit. And I was like, it would like change my life. Even just being able to call the various people. Cause you call those people in the beginning. You're like, Hey, I'm looking, you know, you're an agent. And they're like, yeah, whatever kid, come back to me. I could call them and go like, Hey, so Ron Meyer, like, like my movie. And it, it changed the course of that moment in my career having done that. And that's like, so the movie was like, you know, it had its things. When I look back, I, you know, now it's, of course they see the warts, but at the same time, I'm like extremely grateful just for like having been ignorant enough to think that I could like do it on my own like that. Yeah. Um, when I'm interested in something, cause I've, I've made fun of Jim Hecht when Jim came to my house and he was like, uh, Blah, blah, blah. And I look at his IMDb and I'm like, you know, uh, Ice Age. Ice Age 2, not Ice Age. Ice Age. <laughs> and I'm not, I swear to God, I have much respect for it. Like, of course. your resume is, you know, Godzilla, Kong, Skull Island, which are all like legit movies. Like, I'm not, I'm in no position. Godzilla, King. No, no, Kong. no. But it's, it's the way you stumble into these things. You know, it's like the way I wound up in the Godzilla monster verse was like, I wrote a movie that actually just got made this year on Netflix called, called worth with Michael Keaton. And it's a Ben Stanley Tucci. And uh, it's a movie that I wrote 14 years ago about the nine 11 victim compensation fund. And it was like one of the, it was a script I wrote during the writer's strike of 2007. So I don't know if I did my math right, but 13, 14 years ago, whatever. And it took a long time to finally get made, but it got me a lot of work because people liked the script, but it was a drama, like a serious, like, kind of hard hitting drama. And, um, and along the way, uh, that got me a job writing a biopic for legendary 
uh, about Jimi Hendrix. Right. Because the former head of Legendary, Thomas Toll, was obsessed with Jimi Hendrix and loves rock and roll. So I wrote that script. That script turned out people liked that script. And uh, that never happened for rights reasons. However, I then had a relationship there and they had this Godzilla movie and they were looking for someone. I had no relationship with the Godzilla franchise at that time at all. Like I looked down my nose at it because I was like a Kurosawa fan when it came to like Toho movies, not a fan of the Godzilla movies. But I was like, well, this is an interesting opportunity. I watched the original and I fell in love. And then I worked with the director, Gareth Edwards. And then, it, you know, one thing led to another. And suddenly the first movie that I had made in a real way was a movie that I would never have picked out of lineup had it been, you know, my choice initially. I mean, I'm very proud of it, but still it was like not at all what I would say, like that represents my heart and soul. So I've had so many of those. It's lit in, you know, whatever good fortune led me to Jim, led me to your book, led me to this project, got me back to a place of actually making a thing that is as personal or more personal than that first movie that I made at college in my senior year. Like this show is that personal to me. You know, I grew up in LA. I'm a Laker fan, but I also like the world of it and the era of it. And like my parents, like so much of what I'm writing in these characters is my is or what I bring to it, you know, and everyone's bringing their own thing. But what I'm bringing to it is my own, my dad and my, these people and my, even myself, like these characters that I just like, I understand. And it feels extraordinarily personal in a way that those movies never did and never could for me, or in some ways, maybe for anyone, but definitely for me. Um, and I love them, but it's different. So it's like a weird circuitous thing. And honestly, I'm grateful that uh, hyper object that, that you, that everyone would like look at my resume and go like, you know, and the sort of scripts I had written and be like, oh, like this guy could do this thing because it isn't, it isn't a one-to-one. -one. It's not easy right. to take that leap of faith. And for you to take a leap of faith on Jim and say Ice Age 2, no, he has the passion and who gives a fuck, like that's what gave him his opportunity. Nothing against Ice Age 2, but like that right, doesn't no, right. mean he can't pull off something like this. I think that's, I mean, that is really you never get anything interesting without taking that kind of risk. You write the script, Jimmy. So you wrote the script and the thing is never made. That seems like that would tear it. That tear my heart out. Like writing. Oh God. Yeah. Every single one of the, but, but every one of those tears your heart out, especially when they get close. And that one got tantalizingly close, but a lot of them did. Like my first script got tantalizingly close. Still hasn't been made. We've like rewritten it into like a podcast that now we're going to make. But it's like, they all are like that. But they all come back around. Like the script, I wrote the script, What Is Life Worth in 2008. Uh, it got made last year. And and uh, and that took, that's that movie worth. I mean, that was like, whatever that was, like 12 years at the time, like by now 14 years. And the truth is like, things don't die if they're good. They 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 stick around and there's an opportunity in some and even if they don't you you get an opportunity like i mean in this case you know like i wrote uh, right before this the thing i was working on with hbo was like a uh was a spin-off of game of thrones i was extremely passionate about the idea that i had like i thought we did an amazing thing like i was in love with it and a lot of other people liked it for various reasons, it wasn't the one that they were going to go with. It broke my heart. It may one day, who the fuck knows? Because I've seen weirder things happen. But with if had, had that gone forward, I would be making that right now. And right now, instead, I'm making this. And I wouldn't trade this for that in a billion years. Yeah. A billion years. Yeah. And so like, that's kind of like, I've learned that over the course of time that the way these things work is if you're given the, if you have the tenacity and you have the talent and you have the sort of the passion to continue to go forward with it, it sort of comes out in the wash. And like you, as long as you, you have, the other thing you have to have is you have to love the process, even if it's miserable sometimes, which it is. Right. But like, if you don't, like, I always feel like if I have a day 
where something negative happens on the, on the creative side of things, even if they aren't of equal weight, I will, I will weight the creative more. So like I, and the inverse is true. So that if I have like a shitty thing happen on the business side, oh, they're not going forward with that. But I'm feeling like really inspired and like made some great, like no, you know, wrote some shit that felt really great creatively. It made me feel better then the other thing made me feel worse. And if that's the case, you should be in this business. And if that's not the case, like if the thing that gets your rocks off more is the business side of it, then it's you're just in the wrong business because like you're going to have more ne- more no's on the business side and more potential for yeses on the creative side. And so if you're more in it for the business side, you're going to make yourself miserable and you should do another thing. Final question. Everything goes great and the universe is smiling upon us. What are we talking about 15 years from now in regards to this show? Oh, wow. Okay. Can I say it? Like, how do I, I'm too Jewish. How do I say it without like knocking on wood and poo poo pooing and all these things? Like, I feel like really, I know that's, you're just asking for, you know, you're asking for nuclear war. This is a very dangerous question. <laughs> we'll go agnostic for a minute. We're agnostic. Okay, we're going to go agnostic. We're going to pretend we're not both neurotic Jews. And I'm yeah. going to say, um, when Jim first, when I first had lunch with Jim, after, I think he was feeling me out because I think he was, who the who is this guy? And is he going to, this is my baby and I love this thing and he's going to take it and write it. And is he going to like, is he going to fuck it up? Is he going to keep me involved? Like, what's the relationship going to be? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I sat down with him on the, at a restaurant on the west side of LA. And he goes, I think this could be one of the, he said, not one of, but I'm going to say one of the greatest shows in the history of television. And I laughed. Because I was like, that's hilarious and ridiculous and arrogant and whatever. Yeah. Uh, he didn't say it in an arrogant way, but I was like, ha, 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 ha. And, um, and I didn't believe that at all at that moment. I thought like, oh, it's a fun miniseries. Like maybe we can make it like the people versus OJ Simpson or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, and then over the course of our lunch, he'll tell you the same story. I was like, well, that you couldn't do that unless. And I started talking in my vernacular is I talk. I mean, I know that's actually redundant, but like, I don't, the way I think is I talk. And, uh, and so I like talked, I was like, well, I was like, no, that's absurd. But like, if you were going to make it a great show, like a really great show, what you do is, and it wouldn't just be about basketball. It's about America. And it's about this and that. And Jerry Buss is actually this sort of like, 80s figure that's almost like a kind of like inverted version of a Donald Trump, but there's the same themes there where it's this guy who's like a kind of self-made or like faux self-made man and like selling this image and like there's a dark side to that and, blah, blah, blah. and I just like rambled on and on and on. And by the end of saying that to him, I believed what he was saying. Wow. And I believed like, I didn't know if it would happen and I don't know if it will happen but I do feel that we made a beautiful first season of television. And I do believe that if we're given the opportunity to make more, the sky's the limit. We have an opportunity to make something really, really special. And that keeps me going. You also have the opportunity to pay for my kid's college education. Well, so that would be fantastic. Let's keep it going. Let's keep and it. my own. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Max, man, I, uh, you guys have been nothing but seriously like generous and, giving and again like you easily could have been like we got the book we don't really it's okay goodbye you know like and you guys have been so gracious <laughs> you really have you've been beyond gracious and kind and and it's been well, really you are too jeff well you guys have been great seriously you've been great to me well that I, i'm i'm that that makes me really happy uh, you you are uh the number one fan of the show you're the number one creator and then it's like we get to make it and it gets to you first and you're the first person outside the person Outside the people producing it, you're always the first person to see it. And it's meant a tremendous amount to get back your feedback. And even just you're like, yeah, thumbs up reactions. Like early on, it's like a huge vote of confidence 
which is exactly what you need when you're in the thick of it. Did you not get the email when I wrote to Adam and I was like, "This, you got to fire this Max guy. He's just all wrong for this. Did you not get that? <laughs> <laughs> Never saw that one. <laughs> oh, all right. um, well, thank you so much for doing this. Man. I really, really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much. So cool. I want to thank today's guest, Max Bornstein, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Bornstein and watch Winning Time on HBO and HBO Max. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this and I rely on word of mouth. Also, check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep writing.